And um, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Again, my name's Silas, and we want to welcome you who are here on site, and then also those who are joining us online. Um, It is good to be sharing space with you this morning as we gather around God's Word. If you would, uh, let us prepare our hearts just for a word from the Lord, and join me in a word of prayer um, as we come to this text. And this text in a time that invites us into seeing and being seen by the Lord. Holy God, we are grateful for the gift of this day, and we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and that it would reveal and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do this by the power of your spirit, and we pray this with Christ, and everyone said amen. Amen. Throughout the Lenten season, we've been journeying through the book of Mark together, and over and over again, we've circled back to this fundamental question, who do you say that I am? In Mark 8, this is kind of the center of the book. It's the, the, the pinnacle of the book of Mark itself, and this question comes up, who do you say that I am? So this is a question that we've explored through all of the different texts we've looked at, all through the the healings, the different stories. We've also tied it back to this question, who do you say that I am? You see, every story in Mark tells uh, some kind of connection to this question. The theme of seeing, understanding, perceiving the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ is the point of the book. The very first verse in Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, it's telling us, this is going to tell you something about Jesus. Can you see it? Can you catch it? Who do you say that I am? And so carrying this thread on for us this morning, the passage Jack read for us, it asks us the same question. When we read about the restoration of sight, the healing of the blind, and then Jesus' entry into the temple, who do we understand Jesus to be? Who do you say that I am? One way to answer this question is by saying that Jesus is a healer. We see him heal. In the story we read, he heals. Our passage seems to be clear enough at the beginning. Bartimaeus son of Timaeus, can't see. By the end of the episode, Jesus has restored the sight, and Barty follows Jesus towards Jerusalem. He just comes along. Jesus is a healer. But don't miss the layers of healing and revelation that are happening in this text, because there's more than meets the eye. When he was 13 months old, Daniel Kish lost both his eyes to retinoblastoma. He no longer has eyes. But he's also the first totally blind person to be legally certified as a uh, certified orientation and mobility specialist. And he also holds a national blindness professional certification. And he's learned to see, but he doesn't have eyes. His story is remarkable, his life is remarkable, and it challenges us to think about what it means to see, because even though he doesn't have eyes, he's still able to cook. He walks on the sidewalk, he goes to the store, 
He lives independently. He can ride a bike. Again, he doesn't have eyes. Through echolocation, he clicks his tongue. He catches the bounce of the sound, and he does this over and over and over again. And because of this, he can't see as we see, but his brain has adapted to form a 3D image. Again, he can ride a bike without eyes. And so he navigates. But not only that, he hikes. He loves hiking. And in his love of hiking, here's the thing. We might say, go hike with him, and we'd be able to hike at a certain level of proficiency with our eyes, but we need light to be able to hike, to guide, to find ourselves. He can hike at night, at day. It doesn't matter the time. He can know where he's going to be, and he can see, but he doesn't have eyes. His story makes us reimagine what it means to be able to see. There's an interview that he did on a podcast uh, a couple years back where through the whole interview, he is hiking and leading this team up along a ridge. And they're doing the interview real time. And then the kicker at the end is to say, by the way, for those who are listening, we've been hiking at night and we have no idea where we are. We're just trusting that he's telling us this is the right place to go. This is where I take the step. He can see but he doesn't have eyes. The same holds true for Bartimaeus in our passage this morning. Take a look at verse 47. When we read that when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you spot the importance of this moment? Can you catch the nuance in the text? Physically, he's unable to see. Socially, he's a beggar. On most accounts, he's at the bottom of the societal ladder. Right? And he's overlooked. He's just one of the beggars that can't really move or fend for themselves. And he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is present. Well, who do you think he hears this from? this identification of Jesus? The answer is obvious, but if we're not careful, we'll miss it. He hears it from the crowd, from the people around him, from the people who are coming in, excited. Look, Jesus of Nazareth is here. But Bartimaeus, he knows that Jesus isn't just another prophet or teacher headed to Jerusalem. He sees Jesus for who Jesus really is. Jesus, again, he's the son of David. That's coded prophetic language that tells us Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is making all things new. Remember the central central question of Mark, who do you say that I am? Yes, you are Jesus of Nazareth. This is true. But more importantly, you are Jesus, the son of David, the one who Bartimaeus says Jesus is, is the son of David. It's striking that 10 chapters into Mark, Jesus has performed miracles, he's healed, he's calmed the sea, he's calmed the storms, he's walked on water, he's preached, 
He's fed multitudes of people. He's taught his disciples. He's interacted with a wide host of people from all walks of life. Religious folk, people on the margins, all, everything in between. He's done all of that. And yet, even in that, Bartimaeus is the first person outside of the disciples to say and see who Jesus really is, the son of David. When the crowd tries to shut him up, he doubles down. He circles back, and he cries even louder with the same kind of desperation that we heard Jack talk about last week in that passage where there's a father in Mark 9 crying over his demon-possessed son. I do believe, help my unbelief. Right? He's, he's kratzoing, is that Greek word. He's yelling and from the depths of who he is, from the depth of his being. That word, again, just as a reminder, is the same word Jesus will use when he dies on the cross. It's the same word that we talked about in Revelation in uh, a, a woman in childbirth, the, the screaming, the crying, the depth that leads and births something else. It's the same word. He's crying and proclaiming in as desperate as he can say that he knows the gravity of Jesus' identity. If you aren't convinced that he sees what no one else sees, let's keep looking at the story. But Bartimaeus is a special character. So Jesus hears the commotion, but notice that he doesn't address Bartimaeus right away. Instead, he stops and he says to the crowd, call him. And in this, the whole tone of the crowd changes. You know, moments ago, he was telling Bartimaeus, or the crowd was telling Bartimaeus, be quiet. Like, keep quiet. Don't disturb. You're making a scene. Not just one person, not just one time. The text specifically says, many people rebuked him. And that word rebuke is the word that's used by Jesus against demons. There's, a, there's an edge to it. There's a weight to it. They're saying, you can't be saying anything true. Just be quiet. Stay quiet. Not one person, but many are saying this. But in this moment, Jesus is doing something remarkable. Because now the crowd, they're looking at him differently. They actually say, take heart, be encouraged. On your feet, Jesus is calling you. Like that switch from mockery, from dissension, from condemnation, from denigration, from jeers, it shifts to cheers really quick. And now they're on his side. They're saying, oh, this is good. Go see the teacher. Take heart. Be encouraged. Go see Jesus. By acknowledging Bartimaeus and then calling the crowd to call him forward, in two words, Jesus has just caused the crowd to humanize the blind, crazy beggar that was speaking nonsense, and he's turned their denigration to inspiration, their condemnation to accommodation. He is now part of the group. He's seen in ways that he was not seen before. This is how Jesus' stories work. 
There's more than meets the eye. Your Bible might have a subtitle for this section that says something like, Blind Bartimaeus, he receives his sight. Or, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. These are fair titles. But they're also incomplete. Because as we read this story and consider who can really see in the first place, the story becomes a story where Jesus heals the blind crowd and Bartimaeus. Jesus heals the blind crowd and Bartimaeus. There's a double healing at work in this passage. So the crowd's whole attitude to Bartimaeus, once Jesus' call to them uh, to acknowledge the agency of Bartimaeus, um, once that happens, Bartimaeus, he does something unthinkable. In verse 50, he throws his cloak aside and comes quickly to Jesus. He throws his cloak aside and comes quickly to Jesus. Did you know that in Jesus' time, it was illegal to take someone's cloak from them? Cloaks were a basic necessity. You weren't allowed to strip anyone of their cloak. Even if they owed you money, if they owed you something, cloaks were off limits. Basic necessity. As a beggar, Bartimaeus didn't have much. And this is what makes this act so powerful. When he's called, he gives up his cloak. He throws it to the ground. And he comes to Jesus, and the next word he says is Rabboni, a word of deep reverence. This word, Rabboni, only shows up twice in the New Testament. It's here and then in John. And in John, it shows up when Mary sees the gardener, sees the gardener as Jesus, and says, Rabboni, my teacher. His blind beggar throws his cloak to the ground, arguably his last possession, to the ground to go see Jesus. In essence, he's saying to Jesus, I trust you, and I trust in who you are, to the extent that I will throw my last possession to the ground and follow you. In this story, Bartimaeus does receive his new sight, while also the crowd receives new sight. Jesus heals Bartimaeus and the blind crowd. Who do we say that Jesus is? He's our healer. The healer of physical afflictions, and also the healer of biases that keep us from recognizing the revelation of God from unlikely sources. He's the healer of physical afflictions and the healer of biases that keep us from recognizing God's work in the world. And so this leads us to our next story as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. My guess is that for most of us, we've never read Mark 10 and Mark 11 together as connected texts. Of course, all the chapters of the gospel are connected because they are talking about Jesus' life and story. But if your experience in church has been anything like mine, we've bracketed these texts. This is one story. This is another story. We'll preach this one. We'll preach this one another week. We don't carry over the way that the triumphal entry 
takes all of these themes from this story and weaves them together. As Jesus enters the temple, the story carries on the sight theme with him looking around. The cloak that Bartimaeus throws to the ground in Mark 10, it gets picked up by the crowd. And now in Mark 11, before Bartimaeus, you know, he was the lone voice that called Jesus son of David. Now the crowd is crying out with the same language. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. The threads that tie from this story to this story, the idea of sight, the idea of the cloak, the idea of crying and identifying Jesus for who Jesus is, They're rife, and they overlap in immense ways. In this way, art can show us the ways that stories wrap together like this. I'm not sure if the screen is working, but we have a picture um, from an artist in Tanzania. If you notice this story, it's called Christ Healing the Blind. But if you see in that top left corner, and then also the eye on the right side, you can almost see the image and the imprint of a donkey as a foreshadow to the way that this text and this story is connected to the triumphal entry. This is again from a Tanzanian artist named Tobias Minzi, and he links the way that this story goes together so well. If we were in a classroom setting, we'd dive into more of the grammatical connection points, some of the literary forms that really solidify these texts together. But for now, hear these words from Ched Myers. He's an American theologian and biblical scholar. He notes how these two stories, Bartimaeus and the blind, followed by Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, function as a narrative bridge. That's his language. It's a narrative bridge in the book of Mark. First, it presents what true discipleship looks like. It takes this story of Bartimaeus and says, this is what it means to be a disciple. To, even when in the midst of a crowd that's saying, be quiet. To say, no, I know who Jesus is. To give up your cloak. This is what discipleship looks like. And then second, in this chapter 11, we have this presentation of a case study that invites us to reflect on the definition, the way that discipleship is portrayed here, over here. How do we actually live this out? If chapter 10 is the theory, chapter 11 is the practice. Can you apply chapter 10 to chapter 11 in the way that you read it? What does this mean? In the Bartimaeus story, we see him model a kind of proclamation that ends up healing the very people who rebuked him by means of his consistent focus on Jesus. Consistently saying, I know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to fix my eyes on the Lord. Doesn't matter what's happening around me, I will fix my eyes. On Jesus. As a subsequent case study, Mark 11 asks us some pretty tough questions. 
Now, what would Jesus do if he looked around our temple of worship? Like the crowd, we might be able to say all the right words about Jesus. They're saying and proclaiming about Jesus, Hosanna, son of David. Right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what would Jesus do if he looked around our temple of worship? What would Jesus do if he looked at our lives of faith? Right after this story, Jesus cleanses the temple. Would he do that? Would there be things to cleanse? Would he criticize it because it's not a temple of prayer for all nations? Would he call it out for being an oppressive institution? Would it be a place that recognizes the voice of God through unlikely sources like Bartimaeus in the first place? This is how the story reads us. What would Jesus say if he looked around at our church? And what would he say if he looked around at our lives? These questions aren't meant to shame us. They're not meant to make us feel small. Instead, they are meant to help us recalibrate our lives to make sure that they are focused on Jesus. That our definitions are rooted in the life that God wants to live through us. In our time and context, it can be tempting to want a triumphant faith that is characterized by the way that it dominates any opposition. But this definition of triumphant doesn't mesh with the story from our passage at all. Just like Bartimaeus, who doesn't lord his knowing over the crowd as they are healed, Jesus is coming as a triumphal king is not like the triumphal entry of worldly kings. These words from Pentecostal scholar Jonathan Martin capture this so well. He says, Christians call this scene the triumphant entry. But the man makes triumph into a joke because the parade is the beginning of a death march. If this is triumph, this scene radicalizes the term. Evidently, triumph must look an awful, like, an awful lot like being triumphed over. As his body jiggles on a donkey, fumbling through the stone streets of the holy city, the people wave palm branches and shout, Hosanna in the highest. Yet God is on his way to die as vulnerable to the elements as any other man or woman has ever been. But love does not protect himself from spears or spit or swords. Rods and whips and nature itself will have their way with him. Nails driving into dirt, olive skin like an animal. His body will be bent and twisted like a ragdoll, a puppet. Still, he rides into Jerusalem vulnerable. He keeps coming the way love always does, defenseless. 
This is the life of faith. This is the love of God. Can you see it? Can you see the revelation of God in unlikely sources? This story reminds us, and these stories remind us, to pay attention. That God is speaking to us in the most unlikeliest of places. And even when we hear the triumphant identification, here's where Jesus is. If it's in the way to triumph over, it might not be the word of God. In our time, there are many who are claiming the wholeness of Christ, the character of God. And discerning that has been and is is the question of the day. Who, when Christians say, I believe X, why do Christians believe that? And why do Christians believe different things? This is the question for us. How can this exist? The life of faith and the love of God cause us to open up the ways that God is revealing through unlikely sources. Take, for instance, the month that we're in. Again, we've highlighted that we're in Arab American History Month. One of the things that is is key for us to recognize, one of the imaginations, if there's one thing to take from the month that we want to be attuned to, it's this. If you were to encounter someone who is Arab American in America, did you know that they are likely, more likely than not, to be Christian? 63% of Arab Americans identify as Christian. Now that's striking to us in the way that we just might not even have that on our radar. But sociologically, the data is there. Religious census, as of 2020, confirms that. Can you see the expression of God through personhood that we might not recognize carries that message and that weight, that identity, that religion, that expression of faith, that spirituality? That is a, I mean, that's shocking. And yet it's true. And Zaki, she's an Egyptian Christian theologian. She grew up in Egypt as a pastor's kid. And then kind of lived in Egypt as the transition happened to uh, be a more Muslim country. So now Egypt itself is about 12% Christian. Um, It's not as antagonistic as some other places. And certainly there are countries in the Arab world that are majority Christian. Cyprus is 74% Christian. That's more than America, right? So like there's Christians that... uh, there's Christian witness in parts of the world that we just might not have ever heard of before. But Anne Zaki, she writes this as one who grew up in a context that slowly has changed the way that she can express her faith. And she says, when Christians initiate Christ's way of relating to the other, it will transform lives. When Christians initiate Christ's way of relating to the other, it will transform lives. In this story, 
we can read both of them descriptively. One of Bartimaeus being healed and then following Jesus. We can describe that whole scene. But more importantly for us this morning, the story invites us to say, who are the Bartimaeuses that live around us every day? How are they speaking revelation about God that we need to hear? And will that revelation influence the crowd to usher in a king who comes on a donkey triumphantly in a new way? And can we speak faithfully of this Jesus who comes to the temple? These stories are not separate. They're meant to be read together. And this witness from Anzaki is a strong and powerful invitation that makes us question how we live our lives. And so as we pause and just reflect on these words, I want you to meditate on this question. You can do it with your eyes closed. You can do it eyes open. But I want you to meditate on this question centered on the way that we see God. That's this. When you look around you, who are the people that, ex- that express the character of God in the strongest ways? Who are the people that express the character of God in the strongest ways? Take about 30 seconds and think about that question. as you think about those voices that capture and embody God's wholeness and goodness, celebrate that, that you have voices to look to. That's amazing. It's amazing that you can recognize and see God's work at work in your lives. At the same time, is there a thread that ties all of those voices together for you? It might be a church community. It might be Friends, it might be a certain kind of expression of Christianity that you're wrapped into. This is good. And yet the challenge that we're commissioned into as we go into Holy Week, as we go into this season, is to say, can you expand that bubble just a little bit more, right? Can you expand who you see God's agency and character in? This is our prayer, and this is the prayer I will leave for us as we go into a week of Holy Week, knowing that we also have other handles that invite us to see in this way. Coming up on Good Friday, we are going to be doing a service called Good Friday from the Margins. It's a play on words in the way that the characters are marginal characters. They don't have a lot of presence in the story of God. And also, it's that play to say, They're on the margins of the pages. They're not the main characters. 
And yet God speaks through every one of these characters in amazing, profound ways. Can you find your story in their story? And so we invite you to that on Good Friday. It will be at 7. If you're not able to make it, we do have it streaming online too, so you can catch it there. Um, And that is, again, a thing and a handle to move into as we go through the week. But receive this prayer this morning as we close and end our time. God, we are grateful for the way that you are our, our vision. We pray with songwriters and hymnists from old that you would be our vision. That you would be the Lord of our lives. At the same time, as we call out to you as one who knows and sees us and welcomes us as your children. May any blind spots that we encounter this week and for the weeks to come be illuminated, that you would speak to us through the most unlikely of sources. We know you are always speaking, but we might not always recognize And so, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us in our city and in our community. Speak to us and let us hear. And beyond that, give us strength and faith to know you more, to carry you in faithful ways. We know that your witness isn't always triumphant. It can look like foolishness, riding on a donkey. And yet you call us to you. May we throw our cloaks off and follow you well. And may you meet us in this season and in the season to come. We love you, Lord, and we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. And everyone said, amen.